Uh, I listened to a podcast on my day off on Friday, which was all about delight. And uh, it was a very refreshing time just listening to this uh, reflection on the idea of delight. And you'll be shocked to know that as I reflected on the idea of delight, my mind immediately went to my 10-week holiday that I've just had. And uh, as I thought about all the delightful things we experienced in God's world as a family, I thought I'd just share a little snapshot of that through the lens of one of my daughters. And here is 25 seconds of Estella's delight that you can just enjoy. The beauty of simple delight in this life and our desire for such delight is often highlighted, isn't it, by the absence of delight or the fleeting presence of delight. And I think not does the, the fleeting presence and the painful absence of such delight, even in the small things of this life, are meant to drive us towards the source of delight in God himself the good and loving creator who gives every good gift to his people. And as we meet Jesus again in Luke's Gospel this morning, we see something more of his identity and his mission, who he is and what he came to do, and there is delight to be found in knowing this Jesus. There is delight to be found in knowing this Jesus because he is the bridegroom, who binds himself to his people with covenant promises and who out of faithful love and commitment comes to seek and to save and to secure his people to himself. And this Jesus is the divine Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, who alone can give eternal rest to the burdened and the weary. And so there is great delight in the Jesus that we meet in Luke 5 and 6, and we're reminded how even the patterns and the rhythms of this life, the the presence of delight and its absence are meant to drive us to put our faith in the Lord Jesus, the divine bridegroom, the Lord of the Sabbath, who gives life and joy. Uh, You'll remember if you were here last week that we're, we're meeting Jesus and seeing him outline what it means for him to be God's only saviour king, the long-awaited, anointed Messiah, the one who would come as the servant of the Lord to give his life in order to rescue those who are spiritually blind and spiritually burdened and spiritually lost. And we are seeing as Jesus explains that and enacts that and proclaims that, that wonderful news that in him the spiritually impoverished people with a broken relationship with their heavenly father, the spiritually blind who cannot see the glory of God for what it is, as Jesus comes and proclaims the forgiveness of sins and as he reveals the father to the world, that wonderful news that should be met with universal praise and adoration, with universal acceptance and submission is all too often met with cynicism and rejection. And all too often that cynicism and that rejection comes from the self-righteous, comes from the 
religious people who have set up their own system for knowing God or thinking that they've set up their own system for knowing God, who think that they've uh, earned their own relationship with God through their keeping of rules and regulations. And we see those religious cynics first and foremost in uh, the group called the Pharisees and the teachers of God's law who should know better. And so as Jesus proclaims this wonderful forgiveness, he's just said that he's come not to call the righteous, he's come to call sinners like you and me to repentance and faith. And the Pharisees are continuing to push back with their cynicism and their rejection of Jesus. So pick it up with me at Luke chapter 5, verse 33. They said to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray, And that should be a clue. They're saying, Jesus, even the guy that you like who is preparing the way of the Lord, his guys fast, his guys pray, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples go on eating and drinking. They're far too happy. They're enjoying things far too much. And here is the delight in Jesus that they in their cynicism and rejection, cannot stomach. And Jesus' answer is that the reason that his disciples aren't fasting like the rest of them is because it's time to celebrate. Jesus answered, verse 34, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And in those days they will fast. It's not time to fast while the bridegroom is here. When the bridegroom arrives at the wedding reception, it's time to celebrate. It's time to eat and drink and be merry. Right? And here once again, as we see week after week after week, Jesus is self-consciously seeking to identify himself with the suffering servant of the book of Isaiah. Again, he's wanting to emphasise that that, that the long-promised saviour king that God's people have been looking for for hundreds and hundreds of years has arrived in the person of Jesus. From start to finish, the very first scene of uh, the Bible is where God creates humankind and there is a, a wedding between Adam and Eve and the last scene of the Bible is when God's people are united to the Lord Jesus forever in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Constantly from, uh, from between Genesis and Revelation, the image that we receive in the Bible of God is that he is the bridegroom, the loving husband, who with covenant promises is committed to his people, who in faithful love seeks to, 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 to rescue and secure his people for himself out of delight and love for his bride. He seeks and he saves and he secures them to himself. And the divine bridegroom of Isaiah 54, Jesus says, that is me. The bridegroom who would come to rescue his bride, his people, God himself who would bring forgiveness and life and who would unite himself to his people forever, Jesus says, that is me. 
God had set up for his people a system of relating to him that would keep pushing them to delight in him, right? For hundreds of years, his people had fasted one day a year in order to remind themselves of their dependence upon God, to remind themselves that they need him, that they're satisfied by him alone, to remind them that they need his forgiveness and his life that the Day of Atonement would bring, right? And the Pharisees, in seeking to be self-righteous, said, we're not going to fast once a year, we're going to fast twice a week. Remember last week we talked about the fact that that self-righteousness in seeking to, to, to clear the bar of God's standard by yourself, thinking that God's standard is so low that you in your own self-righteousness, in your own religious observance can make yourself right with God? That's what the Pharisees are seeking to, to show. They're saying, we, we do this to show ourselves worthy of God and that, that we can earn our way to, to heaven. We can climb the ladder to God's acceptance. And Jesus reminded to them that when the bridegroom comes, the one who by grace gathers his people to himself, That is not a day of fasting, that's a day of feasting. That's a day of celebration. That's a day of joy and delight. Jesus says, I am here to seek and to save and to secure my people. That is not a day where you fast, but it's a day when you celebrate. It's a day of joy and delight. Just as it would be inappropriate to walk into any uh, wedding reception and refuse the meal, sorry I'm fasting, and refuse to participate in the celebration of the day. Jesus says now is not the time to refuse the participation in the wedding day. Now is the time to come and to feast and to celebrate. He points forward to the fact that in his death and resurrection there will be a day when we'll be waiting once again. We will be looking forward once again to the fullness of joy. But when Jesus is there with his disciples, the bridegroom has arrived. God himself has come to rescue his people. It's a day to celebrate. It's a day to throw off those old habits of self-righteousness and cynicism. And it's a day to receive the joy and the new life that Jesus provides. He takes us further into that idea as he tells this parable in verse 36. He told them this parable, No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one, otherwise they they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. See, in God's economy, new wine is the picture of his blessing that will flow from the mountains as he brings his people to himself. And the old wine is the old religious system that the Pharisees are drinking and saying, this is fine. 
We don't want the new life that Jesus has come to bring. The new life that this old way of relating to God was meant to drive us towards. Jesus is the new wine that must be poured into new wineskins. The old wineskins of the Pharisees' religion. The old wineskins of the, the, the religious system that was meant to drive us towards Jesus. Jesus says you need to get rid of those things. It served its purpose. It's been fulfilled. It's been met in him. You can't take Jesus, the Lord of the universe, and seek to pour him into the old religious systems of the day, Jesus says. If you seek to do that, your head will explode, right? Jesus doesn't come just to top up an old religious system that needed some help. He doesn't come to kind of stitch up the holes in your old religious ways of relating to God. He comes as the fulfilment of God's law. He comes to bring new life and a new way of relating to God through him directly. And so the Pharisees are angry at this. They're resistant to this. They're cynical towards this because what does this mean? It means their whole livelihood is being put aside. It means the temple has reached its completion. It means that the law as a way of relating to God has met has met its completion, all those things that they're going to have to set aside and say now it's through Jesus that we relate to God, it's through Jesus that we can have forgiveness, it's through Jesus that we know who God is and we trust and follow him. Well, the implications of that are too big for the Pharisees and so they meet Jesus with their cynicism and rejection in order to hold on to their old patterns of self-righteousness in relating to God. The other picture Jesus gives is one of an old garment that's tattered and worn and reached its use-by date. A bit like this hot tuna sweatshirt that I bought at Paddington Town Hall in 1996, which I still love and have like an emotional attachment to, right? But I know it's reached the end of its usefulness. I don't then take this lovely, fairly new jacket with lovely red stitching and a beautiful kind of lining on the inside I don't think because of my emotional attachment to this old hot tuna sweatshirt that I should start chopping up the new jacket to extend the life of the worn-out piece of clothing, right? That would be insane. Although emotionally, I kind of want the hot tuna sweatshirt to continue, right? Jesus said, He doesn't come into the world to be chopped up and used as patches on the old religious systems. You can't take Jesus to fill a hole in your own religious way of relating to God. Jesus says you need to lay that old system aside and you need to take on the new garments of his own righteousness that he provides. That's the appropriate thing to do. 
And friends, I think this picture of the way the Pharisees relate to Jesus is often the way we want Jesus to work in this world. As we hold on to the old baggage of the things that we're emotionally attached to or the things that make up our identity and where we find our self-worth and where we think our standing before God comes from or our standing in the community comes from, where we gain our identity from and we find those things hard to put down and we, we can't just take Jesus and tack him on to the end of it or to think that Jesus just comes to give that little boost at the end to make us right with God or Jesus just patches that religious hole that we have in our lives and we hold on to all the other things as well. Jesus says if we seek to do that, our heads will explode. You can't contain him in your old way of living. You can't contain him in your old way of relating to God. You can't join him up with another uh, religious worldview. You need to lay those things aside and receive the life and the hope that Jesus brings as the new way of relating to God, of the only way of finding the forgiveness of sins and knowing the delight of your heavenly Father who comes as the bridegroom to seek and to save and to secure himself to his people. As well as adding lots of rules about fasting the Pharisees had added 613 commandments to make sure that the Sabbath was kept. We pick it up at uh, chapter 6 where we see that Jesus is not only the divine bridegroom but he is the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath. One Sabbath Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why, what, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus comes back at the Pharisees' uh, question, their cynical question of Jesus, uh, with a slam dunk about his identity. The great King David was able to break the Sabbath in order to feed himself and those with him. I, Jesus says, the Son of Man, the great King David's greatest son, the fulfilment of that Davidic king, the one who will rule over God's kingdom forever and ever, How much more am I able to break the Sabbath to feed myself and my disciples? Jesus' point that he gets to later is that the the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made in order that God's people might long for the eternal rest that only he can provide. 
And so on another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? He looked around at them all and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was completely restored. The Pharisees in their cynicism and their rejection of Jesus were so caught up in their own system of self-righteousness that they weren't even willing for good and life to be done. They were so caught up in their own religious system that they would rather see this man continue in his suffering than one of their 613 commandments be broken. The system of self-righteousness and cynicism can be so blinding to the reality of life and hope that Jesus brings. That again, what should be a moment of delight and celebration as Jesus undoes the effects of a broken world, as Jesus points to the eternal life and the complete rest that he comes to bring a weary and burdened world, that in the midst of that, the cynicism and the self-righteousness is so thick that they can't even see life and hope when it's right in front of them. These incidents for the Lord Jesus, the divine bridegroom who should be celebrated and received as the one who brings new life and the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who can bring hope and eternal rest to a weary and burdened world. Might our cynicism, might our self-righteousness be so thick that we fail to see and to grasp the delight and the joy and the rest that this Jesus seeks to bring to those who would trust and receive him. Jesus, the divine bridegroom, has come to seek and to save and to secure his people. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, has come to bring complete rest to a weary and burdened world. Don't let the thickness of your own cynicism, don't let the hypocrisy of your own self-righteousness stop you from delighting in the wonder of this Saviour. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost, who came to lay down his life that we might be forgiven, 
who came to bring rest to a weary and burdened world. We pray, our Father, that you would help us to see him clearly, to not let our own cynicism, to not let our own self-righteousness get in the way of the joy and the hope and the life that Jesus brings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.